You're listening to the DNB Supply Show podcast, your number one resource for living the country lifestyle. This is your host, Matt Breckwald, coming to you from my place in the country to yours. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the D&B Supply Show. Hey, this is your host, Matt Breckwald, and I am just pumped to be here with you today. I really, really, really get to dive into something that is of great interest to me today, and that is pasture-based farming and, and how to set up kind of a, a pasture-based system where one species benefits the next, and really, you can get everything out there and surviving and thriving on pasture. And I was fortunate enough to find a local farm here in the Treasure Valley, actually just south of Nampa, McIntyre Acres, and Brad and Maria McIntyre. So Brad is one of the family members that is in the lineage of this farm that started in 1909. And Maria is his sister-in-law, his brother Ben's wife, and everybody works there on the farm. And Brad and Maria both agreed to come on and discuss their roles and give us information about how they've constructed and how they operate their pasture-based system for turkeys, for chickens, for cattle, and for pigs out there south of Nampa. Really fascinating interview. And if you've ever tried to figure out how you would like to do this or you're looking for a niche to start your own small farm, there's really great information for you in this episode. I'm so excited to bring it to you and we'll have it out to you here in just a moment. Brad and Maria, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Really appreciate you letting me borrow your expertise. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having us. (laughs) You bet. Well, you guys, it's it's fun to speak with both of you at the same time, and I know you both have your your own unique roles with McIntyre Pastures, but I'm I'm really excited to do this episode and to bring this to our listeners and really to to give people some answers to questions they've been thinking about. So what do you say? Should we just jump in? Yep, let's do it. All right. Well, I'm going to do this. I'd like to start off with just a brief introduction of each of you. Brad, let's start with you and and we'll get around to to why we're starting with you here in a minute. But if you could just kind of tell us who you are and and what you do. Yeah, Brad McIntyre. I am one of the owners of uh, McIntyre Pastures along with my brother Ben, who is Maria's husband. And my father, Lauren, and my mother, Kathy. So I am what I call myself as one of the farm managers. I take care of a lot of the the irrigating and day-to-day, some of the animal stuff, and keep the crops going and and keep everything alive and and running. All right. Very good. Thank you. And and Maria, how about you? Yeah, so Brad introduced me. I am Ben's wife. And I don't know, I've always been really hands-on. I grew up on a farm in southern Idaho down in Magic Valley, and... Just love the farm life. I have a marketing degree, and so when we started getting into the pastured, more of the pastured end of stuff, um, it's all direct sale. So that's where I came in and do a lot of the marketing, and still do animal care and stuff too. And Brad forgot his wife's name is Jill. She also is <laughs> oh, yeah. part of our part of our group. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you just got Brad into trouble or just got him out of trouble, but but either way, thanks no, for. No, I think I got him out. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yep. And, and I guess I should say I, I, have, I have six kids that we're raising up, um, and so they're part of the almost 30 grandchildren my parents have. Oh, boy. Wow. Yep. I have four, and mine are older, so they're already very, very involved with what we do every day working okay. here on the farm. So, yep. Well, you know, I've, I've gone through your website, and you guys have a great website there at McIntyreFamilyFarms.com. 
really, really well done website, and it, it's very informative. But I see through reading through it, Brad, that uh, this farm is a it's a family legacy, and it's a it's a century farm. It is, yep. And so it's I'm fourth generation. Our kids are going to be fifth generation here, and so we we pride ourselves on that, and that's one of the reasons we went into this direct sales pasture base, not only for soil health, but also for farm longevity, trying to get out of the, the commercial mainstream mm-hmm. and trying to figure out how can we, you know, boost our income per, on our acreage that we already have instead of trying to fight everyone for more rented land and, and do all these things. How can we develop, right? that? And also, Definitely. yeah, and, and also keep our family working together because it's hard sometimes getting kids involved in a big commercial operation. Well, you know, that's a really interesting point you bring up, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this episode, is there's a lot of people out there who would like to find a way to to be involved in agriculture and have a farm business, but these days, uh, with so much competition for for land, those prices really go up, so you've got to find a way to mm-hmm. kind of make a make a living and, and have a niche on your ground, especially if you're first getting started out. And even with you guys having the farm since 1909, you still need to carve out that niche and and find your way to make it work. So it'll be really interesting to profile what you did. Yep, thanks. You also have to be willing to be flexible too, I feel like. So that's something that we're doing is being creative. So. Well, now, w- uh, what was originally raised on this farm? I know it goes back to 1909, but was this farm traditionally commodity-based? Yeah, it, it's always been a, a heavy forage, so which we still do. A lot of uh, alfalfa and corn and, and wheat and supplying the local animals, dairy and beef market. Mm-hmm. Our grandfather, he did quite a bit of seed production, a lot of uh, sweet corn and, and other seed production, which we have started doing uh, more of that on the acreage. We don't uh, have the animals on. We uh, raise cover crop seed okay. and sell that into the that cover crop seed market and also do some peppermint oil production. But he also did some fun stuff too. He grew some watermelon and different things like that as well that he would haul in and sell. So okay. he did some different things as well. So today there's, there's, there's some cover crop seed, there's some mint being grown, but what would you say the primary, I, I don't know, the primary product you're producing on the farm is today? It, it, it goes back to alfalfa production, and that's really what our family was known for, is we were a big custom alfalfa producer who went around and harvested that for a lot of the neighbors in, in, a, in a community. And mm-hmm. that, this last year, we actually hung our hat up on the custom side of that, and, and we do it just for ourselves now. Okay. There was a lot of factors that went into that, but we've trying to kind of hone in on our land and in our family and trying to do the best we can with our land. And we were kind of losing focus as we were going, being so busy running, running all around. Mm-hmm. And so we, we got rid of that part of the business. And so we do our own hay and we were able to sell that uh, locally and throughout the United States in, in a smaller product, but just try to market it better. And then, of course, uh, Maria, on your side of things, you're marketing a lot of pasture-based meats, and, and that's kind of what I'm honing in on here. So what is mm-hmm. the what is the list of products there on, on that side of, of the farm equation? Yeah, so we have, um, we have over 3,000 laying hens, so we get a lot of eggs every day. So pastured eggs um, are number one, I guess, because they're so constant and we have so many. And then behind that, we have our pastured pork and grass-finished beef, 
and then we do um, mobile pastured chicken and pastured turkey. We have a few provisions besides that, you know, some cornmeal and some seasonings, but those are our those are our mains right there. Well, that's kind of what we're going to focus in on for the rest of the interview is that that pasture-based model and and the the meats that you're growing and and how you do it pasture-based. We want to kind of use your expertise to give everybody else some information on how they can get that done. So let's take our first break. And when we come back, let's kind of jump into that that grass-based discussion. All right. Summer festival and concert season is here. But is your wardrobe ready for the next big show? D&B Supply will help you look your best with a huge selection of Wrangler shirts, jeans, and more. Wrangler gear is the perfect fit for any night out. Plus, with a wide range of styles, cuts, and sizes, Wrangler will keep you comfortable long after the music stops, through the after party, and even the after after party. So stop by D&B Supply for summer looks that stand out wherever your night takes you. Tired of choosing between feeding your lawn for a thick green turf and fighting annoying weeds? D&B Supply is here to help you do both with Scott's Turf Builder Weed and Feed. Sometimes feeding your lawn also means feeding unwanted weeds that have taken root. That's why Scott's developed Turf Builder Weed and Feed, which uses a weed killer while also feeding your lawn to crowd out the weeds. So get to the root of your lawn issues with Scott's Turf Builder Weed and Feed at your favorite D&B Supply. All right, you guys. Well, now that we're back, I, I want to kind of jump in and talk about doing things on a pasture-based model. And, you know, running cattle on pasture, I mean, that can be an art form in itself, but it's kind of the most obvious animal that you think of when you think about being pasture-raised. So let's start with the cows, and we'll work our way down through the pigs. But let's talk. start with the cows. And, and what is a typical paddock size for your cattle with, with the rotations that you're doing? So... Where we hold our cattle, it's all irrigated pasture, and we actually buried our sprinkler system, you know, 10 plus years ago, mm-hmm. not knowing what we were going to do in the future with grazing cows and, and, you know, doing this whole system. So we are set on a paddock size, okay. which fluctuates anywhere from a half acre to one and a half acres in the paddock size. Sometimes we put a cross fence up, you divide those up. But because of that, they're long and skinny. They're not ideal, but it's our irrigation system. We have to fence that off so Mm -hmm. we don't break sprinklers off. So for anybody out there listening, when it comes to setting up irrigation, your recommendation would not be having a buried sprinkler system to run a rotational grazing type of of situation. Well, and if they do, make it tall enough that that you don't have to fence it off. Ours is real short to the ground, so the cattle, if we don't fence it off, the sprinklers are gone. They'll break them off in just a matter of a couple of hours. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So (laughs) So if you have them too too low to the animal, you're going to have them higher than than what they can scratch on or break off. But I'd say say the buried sprinkler still is a good idea, though, just definitely a good idea. Just if you make it so that they can't knock them down. Okay. So your your paddocks are kind of the the size is a little bit predetermined, but you've you've probably figured out a method to work with those sizes. We have. Now, how often are you rotating? We rotate depending on the group and, and the amount of animals in it, but it's a matter of how much forage is left, not a set time. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it's every day. Sometimes it's it, you know every three to four days, depending on how much forage is growing at the time. 
you know, what's happening in the pasture. So what are you shooting for? What have, what have you found works best, at least on your farm, in terms of how much forage you want to have left when you decide to move those cows off? Ideally, it's 50%. Take 50, leave 50. That doesn't always happen, you know, as you're trying to get all the other farm chores done. Mm-hmm. But we really don't want to go under 30%. And so when you say 30%, you're talking about 30% of the height that you started out with? That's correct. Because as you know, a plant grows from its solar panel and that's the leaves. Mm -hmm. So if we remove all the leaves from that plant, it now has to use its reserves in its root system to flush back in that energy. And when you do that, you lose, it sheds root. And so we're trying to leave that leaf matter to just you be able to use that energy, you know, and just grow right from that point. So we don't want that graze to the ground because then your root system becomes shorter and your it just becomes an inefficient system. So we want a, a growing, you know, solar panel left there okay. for the next grazing. Now, I've got a question about this, and this is something, this is a puzzle that I have tried to figure out on my own place but even when I've got great forage height and I'm rotating, because we'll rotate cattle as well, when I put cattle out, I'll find that they'll eat some areas right down to the ground and leave other areas up higher. So when I'm looking at my overall forage height, I've got some areas that are lower than I want them to be, some areas that are still plenty high that they haven't grazed off yet. Do you encounter that at all, or is there, a, is there something you can do to mitigate that? We, we do have that at times. I find that my drier parts of the pasture get grazed lower mm-hmm. than the than the, the more lush parts of the pasture. So sometimes if you can fence them into those areas, create a, a higher density, more of a, I don't know what you call it, where kind of a mob you know, there's not as much forage. Like yeah, it's mob yeah. grazing. But you're trying to encourage them to, I got to eat it because there's too much competition here. So I'm going to eat what's here because I don't want to lose out. Mm-hmm. And you got to do that by fencing and just maybe even just trample that down and let it flush back because some of the fescues around here, you know, they don't want to eat them. They might have some toxicity in them or or whatever. It's the grasses, the type of grasses that you have. And and the length that they're in the pasture will create that as well. So if they ate them down short the last time, they're going to do it again because that's the more lush new grass. Interesting stuff, you guys. Well, let's do this. I'm going to take another quick break, and when we come back, I want to jump into why you follow the cattle with chickens. That sound okay? Yep. Yep. A well-worn pair of Danner boots has become a hallmark of hardworking and hard-playing people in the West and everywhere else for that matter. Find your next pair of long-lasting, great-looking Danner boots at D&B Supply. Hold a Danner boot in your hand, and you'll notice the handcrafted precision. Try it on and you'll feel the difference. Test it against the elements and you'll appreciate the value of a product that's built to last. From classic hiking boots to handcrafted work boots to fashion-forward looks to fit your daily life, stop by D&B Supply to try Danner boots on for size. The heat is on this summer in more ways than one. Because now is the perfect time to update your old wood fireplace with a gas insert from D&B Supply. Get fired up for the change of seasons with Quadrifier or Heat & Glow stoves and inserts. Safe, easy to use, and money-saving, a gas insert updates the look of your home and heats it more efficiently. Check out our Quadrifier or Heat & Glow inserts 
and see why D&B is a real hot spot for quality fireplaces. All right. Well, now that we're back, and either one of you who wants, jump in and take this question, but I want to know about following the cattle with chickens. And so why do you do that? Well, I'll, I'll give you my two cents. Um, we, we try to run our cows, our beef, ahead of the chickens. Chickens follow behind a few days behind, um, just so that once the cows have been on there, then the chickens can get right in the cow patties and scratch out the, the larvae of the flies and stuff. So okay. it really helps with fly control naturally. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons. And I'll add to that, I, we're, this whole thing that we're doing is we're trying to mimic nature, biomimicry. Okay. And if you, if you think back to the buffalo and what followed the buffalo were massive migrations of birds. And they were coming back and cleaning up behind them. And so we're, we're doing the same thing. So it's our pasture sanitation crew. It's cleaning up the cow pads, trying to get rid of flies and, and uh, disease. Okay. And at the same time, reduces some of the feed that we have to feed them. And we get a nice, healthy egg, which in turn is, you know, it's healthier food for our customers. So to describe this to everybody, if you... Uh, you know, if you made just a big square, you drew a big square and divided that, say, into four paddocks. And so you're just kind of drawing a fantasy pasture on a piece of paper. If you had A, B, C, and D, and the cows started in A, when the cows moved from A to B, the chickens would go into A. And then when the cows went from B to C, the chickens would go into B. Am I under- trying to paint this picture for people listening? Is that right? Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, it's a little bit. It, it is, and it's a little bit different. So that larva really comes on like between day three and five, depending on the temperature outside. Mm-hmm. And so we're a little bit behind them just so, you know, the larva is ready and that chicken will get in there to that patty and spread it out. So it's not only they're getting the bugs, they're also spreading the nutrients out. So it's not heavily concentrated in a one foot circle. They can spread it out three, four feet. Okay. And so it's spreading nutrients. It's getting the bugs. So you have to be a little delayed and just not right on top of them, mm-hmm. but but yes, you're moving. You're moving behind them in a sequence. Okay. So, what? Just to clarify for people listening, what we're talking about is when the cow deposits the manure in the pasture, flies are going to come and they're going to lay eggs in that manure. And you're saying about manure, yeah, yeah. In, in about three days after they lay those eggs, that's when those eggs are going to hatch, and you're going to have larvae that are active in those piles of manure. Yep. And and, and good sized larvae. I mean, there's some that are pretty dang quick. But just a healthy amount that the chickens really get aggressive on those patties. Okay. So the chickens come in about three days after the cattle have, have dropped that manure, and they will scratch through it. They will eat that larva, and that larva never develops into a fly. Yeah, and it's it's 50%. Okay. I mean, it's not perfect system. Uh-huh. You know, if it's got a little bit left and there's still moisture there, that larva is going to – there's going to be larva that gets by. But we don't use any porons. We don't use any fly control on the cattle. Okay. Um, it's a complete natural system, and so that chicken's doing all the work that we can we can get done. The other reason we do that is we're a firm believer in our soil health, and to have real healthy soil in our pasture, we need dung beetles, mm-hmm. and that those poron chemicals come right out of the cow pad, and then when the dung beetles come up, they also die because they're in that paddock and using that manure. So mm-hmm. we're really conscious of that, and we're trying to create a system that that everyone can survive in. And so this discussion could go so many different directions and go on and go on, but the dung beetle, 
that's going to come up. That's going to, it's obviously going to be consuming that manure, but it's going to be taking those nutrients and that nitrogen from the manure back down into the soil and making the soil healthy, correct? Yep. Yeah. And so that's, that's, yeah, a good... and it creates stability. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It creates stability in that, that system. So you're not leaching the nitrogen, you're not leaching nutrients or volatilizing it. It's putting it in the soils. And so we're really conscious of those dung beetles. And this is a management strategy, but it's one that, uh, you know, it really takes all of that into account. I I wanted to ask you about this because this is something that I fight from time to time with the flies, and that is pink eye. Now, with you having following the the cattle with chickens and having them out there and and hopefully reducing that fly population by about 50%, do you see impacts? Do Do you have to deal with things like pink eye as frequently as other people raising cattle? We have not vaccinated for pink eye ever. We have had in the last six years, we've had a couple cases. Mm-hmm. We haven't had any in the last couple of years. I think as the system gets better and better, um, those things will continue to go down. I mean, we do still get some watery eyes, but none of it's developed into pink eye. I'm not saying that won't happen, but I think the chances go down as everything gets a little bit better. The longer you do it, yeah. Well, Maria, let me ask you this. So when it comes to moving yeah. moving those chickens into the pasture, following those cows, how do you do that? How do you get the chickens to go where you want them to go? We actually just worked this winter. We have a great, um, we have a lot of family, and then we have some great employees, and we worked all together, and we actually fabricated three big mobile coops okay. where we can put a 1,000 birds on each coop. And so... Those are on an actual trailer, and we have a tractor hooked to each one, so that's how we move them. Interesting. So at night, we lock them in. They're all inside for predator control, and then move them to where they need to be in the morning, and then open open the trailer up, and they're ready to go. And did you say you can put a 1,000 birds on each? Right, yeah. Wow. We made them big, yes. <laughs> yes, you did. That's a lot of chickens, <laughs> and that's a lot of eggs. Yeah, so we did a lot of cool stuff with them, too, because we'd... Um, we started out with a really small model with 350 birds uh-huh. several years ago and, and built a little trailer, and it worked great. And so this is just um, building up from there. Wow. Okay. So. Well, so, Brad, let me ask you about the, the construction of that. I, was this made on the farm? Yeah, it was. We had uh, an outfit out of CUNA help build the frame. Okay. Ken Welding built the frame for us because uh, we knew it was going to take a lot of time. And manufacturing is not easy. I learned that and just trying to keep enough materials there that everyone, everyone busy and everyone going and it just took longer than we anticipated, mm-hmm. but, um, it was fulfilling for sure. And it couldn't have been done without, uh, our, our employees. I mean, it was, they did a lot of work to get that all done and finished. And a few of them were later than we wanted to be, but uh, we still had the houses from last year, but the system works. Yes. It was a lot of work, but now we're, we're very happy with the product that was made. So this was not, was this an existing chassis from some other trailer, or was this all built from scratch? It all was all scratch. built from scratch. The, yeah, the only thing that we didn't build was the lay box. We got that from a company out of Europe. Okay. And the lay box is it's in the center, so there's, there's uh, mats on each side. It roll, the eggs roll to a center belt. And then we collect them out of a, out of the back as we roll that belt back. We collect all the eggs from one point at the back. Very cool. So this is awesome. And we also we also did some cool stuff with it. We just tried to make it as efficient as possible. We did it. We made it so the feed is all 
not automated, but easier to manage as well. So mm-hmm. you're not just pouring into feeders constantly. Very cool. So you have got you've got the chickens out there that are helping with the fly problem. They're helping to fertilize the soil, and at the same time, they're producing eggs, which you consume, but you also sell as a product off your farm. Yep. Correct. Yeah, yep. That, that is great. All right. Well, I've got to take a break. I could keep talking about this and keep going and going, but let me take a quick time out. We'll take another break, and when we come back, I've got more questions for you. I think, I think people that are into this pasture-based model are going to be fascinated with how you're doing it, so we'll be right back. All right. Feeding your pet's lifelong health starts with science, and that's exactly what's behind Hill Science Diet. Made by vets, scientists, and nutritionists, Hill Science Diet offers biology-based nutrition for all pets with formulas for every age, size, and special requirement or need, like joint health and weight loss that create differences you can see, feel, and trust. No wonder it's the number one veterinarian-recommended pet food. So pick up Hill Science Diet at D&B Supply today. You wear jeans, but you live in Levi's. At DMB Supply, we've got a pair to fit you just right. Iconic and hardworking. Levi's are legendary. Worn by cowboys, rock stars, and everyday people, we carry different washes, styles, and sizes for both men and women. These jeans are ready for anything your day brings, from working outside to a night on the town. The denim legacy lives on every time you put them on. So pick up some Levi's at DMB. Well, you guys, your mobile coop, I mean, that's fascinating. I, I, I could see pictures of it on your website, but I had no idea that what I was looking at could hold a thousand chickens. That's pretty incredible. And I, I want to ask you more about this. So uh, you're you're moving this. Are, are you moving the chickens every day or since you're trying to stay about three days behind the cows, do you have some lag time in there? No, we do move every single day just because chickens, they don't take as big of area as a cow. Uh-huh. So yeah, every single day. So we lock up at night, collect, lock up at night. That definitely ensures predators can't get up in them. Uh And then in the morning at daybreak, we move each trailer to a new spot. The reason, too, is our paddocks are really long and skinny, like I said in the beginning. Uh True. And a chicken will only range so far, about 300 feet. And so we uh, move them up and down that long paddock. And so it times out with the cattle moves. So just because you've followed the cattle into a certain paddock doesn't mean that the chickens are out of there as soon as you move the cattle. That It's going to take them a couple of days maybe for you to work through that entire paddock. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, Definitely. Yep. Okay. Now, as you're doing this, does it impact your irrigation schedule? Uh, I'm assuming you don't want to be irrigating a paddock that you've got the chickens in. Right. It does. That My dad does uh, the chicken moving and the irrigating. Uh-huh. And that is probably the biggest dance there is, is you're getting, you know, you got to turn off enough days to get the cattle in and then they graze. And then you got the chicken tractor that's heavy with a thousand birds and water and feed. So you have to keep it dry for them to go through those paddocks. And so sometimes it does get a little dry. That is one of the tougher things. We always wish that we were in a rainy environment, but then that we'd have other challenges with that as <laughs> yeah, well. Right. So, but yeah, it does delay it. Okay. Now, the chickens, they identify with the mobile coop, not the area they're in, meaning uh, no matter if you've you've moved them in the morning or moved them in the evening or whatever it may be, when they when it, when it starts getting dark outside, they're going back to the coop. Right. That's what you work for, definitely, is you want them to identify with that coop. Because, yeah, when we, when we first put birds out in the spring, because we, 
we don't leave these in over the winter. It's just not possible. That's always a challenge at first. They're not identifying with their coops, so then mm-hmm. you have to have a lot of manpower to get them back up in the coops at night. Uh, interesting. Yeah, your goal is to get them to love their mobile house and want to go and roost inside at night. So you do not keep the chickens, Maria, in, in the coop or in the mobile coop over the winter? No. Our biggest challenge with that, and Brad can give any others, but is the our water system. Since we're mobile, we're hooking it to fresh water all the time. Okay. And so about November, 1st of December, all that water starts freezing up. Okay. So we don't have a fresh water source that's not frozen. So I, because as, as I'm sitting here pondering this and trying to picture it, I'm, I'm picturing my own place, of course, but uh, if I had a mobile coop, what I'm picturing is when it, when it gets to be winter and we're not dragging from place to place on the pasture, uh, that I'd, I'd put the mobile coop somewhere stationary and then I, maybe I could run electricity into it and, and have a heated automatic waterer or something like that. But am I, is that possible and it just doesn't fit your model or is my thinking faulty and that wouldn't work for some reason? No, no that's, I would that's say possible. A lot of people do it. it you, it's, it's our sheer numbers. Gotcha. <laughs> it's the number of birds that you would have to house doing that for us. But yeah, if you had a small model, I think it would definitely work. I told you, I, I'm fascinated with this stuff, and I, I'm gleaning as much off of here from my own places for everybody listening, but really, really interesting things. Okay, so we know about the benefits of following the cattle with chickens, uh, with the parasite control, the fly control, and things like that. I want to ask you about pasture practices for raising your meat birds. How does that differ from raising your layers? And uh, Brad, if you'd like to jump in with this one. So we have them in the brooder for the first three weeks of their life. Uh, We get them going, get them feathered out there. And then from there, we have have drag coops. So they're sitting on the ground, no wheels. Uh, We move them every day still, but they... We have chicken wire. They're, they're contained in that coop. It's uh, about 40 by 25. And so we can do about 500 birds in there. Okay. And they have plenty of space, plenty of grass to get to. get to. But they're such a slow bird, not very mobile. And so predator-wise, they're not very fast at moving. So okay. we keep them contained in there. And we just drag that ahead every day to get them to fresh grass. And... Uh, they have a water system that goes along with them there. So would this be what people refer to when, they, when they're referring to a chicken tractor? I mean, I know they come in all different shapes and sizes, but is that kind of what we're talking about here when you see a drag coop? Yeah, it's, it's similar. Yeah, it, ours is all made out of uh, galvanized metal and okay. uh, some you know, cloth and plastic material. But it's not like the size of like a salatin method. It's, it's an oversized deal, so our tractors pull it. Um, we had them because it was a model that we tried to go to with the laying hands and it didn't work. So we already had those coops when we went to the meat birds Okay, and it works really nice. I mean, it just provides really nice shade. Um, it's a really nice, you know, size. We can keep all the birds in each batch right in there. And it's just, it, it's actually been one of the best systems that we've got going on the farm. 
All right. Um, we're going to take our final break right now. And when we come back, I want to ask you more about raising chickens for meat on pasture. All right. Mm-hmm. Are you ready for a steal? Then stop by DMB to pick up steel power tools. German engineered, these power players offer quality that never quits, like the steel MS 271 Farm Boss Chainsaw, available for just $429.95 with a 20 inch bar and chain. Show your project list who's boss and leave it in your sawdust. With legend chainsaws, dependable trimmers, forceful blowers, and epic tools of the trade. Still powers through anything. Grab a still at your favorite DMB supply. After a long day on your feet, nothing feels better than slipping into some twisted X moccasins. So pick up a pair at DMB Supply. These aren't your ordinary shoes. With roots in Western boots, Twisted X creates handcrafted, comfortable moccasins that stand out from the pack. They capture the spirit of the American West from the design down to the soles. Find your new favorite comfort shoes with a pair of Twisted X moccasins. Available at your favorite D&B Supply. All right, you guys. Well, obviously, I'm fascinated with what you're doing on your farm, and, and there's so much of it I, I hope to one day incorporate on my own. But I let's talk more about raising chickens for meat out on pasture. So uh, my next question would be, so you're dragging this this contained chicken coop across your pasture, and I'm assuming you're doing this every day so the chickens can get fresh grass. Is that right, Maria? True, every day. Yep, and I don't know if you want to break into this, but in addition, we also do pasture turkey. Okay. And so we, we do that with those as well, but the turkeys are more mobile, so we let them free range out of the building, okay. out of the tractor, and then they coop up inside at night. Now, Maria, yep. when you're using this method and you're you're pulling that 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 coop, the chicken tractor, whatever you want to call it, when you're pulling it from place to place day after day, is that the only feed that you have to provide your turkeys and your chickens, or do you have to supplement them with feed as well? So a bird definitely needs more than just grass uh-huh. to survive. So yeah, we do we do have a supplement supplemental feed that we give them. Okay. So and Brad knows more about everything that's in that, so you can. Sure. Ask him on that. Yeah, that feed it's it's all soy free. It has corn in it. It's all non-GMO, mm-hmm. and that's you, you know there's a lot of reasons we do that. But a chicken is an omnivore, similar to a pig, and so we have to get provide them that energy. They get a lot of protein out of the pasture, but we need to provide that energy to them, and so we're kind of balancing that. So they have access to feed at all times, mm-hmm. and they get some bugs. They get the green grass. And so whatever else they need, they can select out of that grain. Now, is this the same pasture where you have your layers and your cattle and, and you're following with meat birds as well? Or do they have their own pasture completely dedicated to them? They do. They have their own pasture. We do bring the, the steers over there and graze that pasture down. And so they have the chance to get those same bugs as they go through the, there. But then the steers will go back. Um, it's a smaller pasture, so that the steers just quickly go through it, and then they go back over to where the laying hens are. What breed of chicken do you use for your meat birds? We just use the standard Cornish cross. That's okay. what we found is, is the best. Well, I wanted to ask about that. So I've raised Cornish cross uh, twice, and mm-hmm. and they get so big so fast. I wondered about them moving every day with the mobile coop, but they're able to get along and, and move and, and, and do that every day. Well, we definitely have learned things, too, in doing them in bigger numbers. We always raised a few, all of us, you know, for several years. But doing them in big numbers, we've learned a lot of stuff. And that's, like, part of it is to pull the feed at night so okay. that 
they don't get so big so fast. And oh. as far as their mobility, we do have kids or employees in there when we're moving the house, and we definitely like. I don't know how you say it. Push them along. <laughs> okay. Definitely help them along. Okay. Get older. Yep. Very interesting. So the you know when you're working cattle and you have that stick with the paddle on the end that has like the little rattles in it. I do. Yes. Those same sticks. If you in those houses, if you stand behind them and just shake them and make that rattling noise, mm-hmm. it's a really awesome tool to keep them moving. They they don't like it, and so they keep moving up and away from you. And we pull really really slow because they are slow animals, and so it takes longer than normal. But you just go real slow and you rat, make those rattles. And most of them, there's a few that you have to you know pick up and move, but. Most of them will just keep moving. And you're just pulling it the length of the mobile chicken coop, right? You're just one yeah. length. Is that yeah. right? Okay. Yeah, one length a day. One length yep. a day. Got it. Very interesting. Well, I'm fascinated with all of it. I, what I want to do now is I want to switch over to talking because, I mean, we haven't even got to your pastured pork yet. But let's switch over and talk about what you're doing with pigs out on pastures. that sound all right? You bet. Yeah. Okay. So now, Maria, do do the pigs have their very own pasture just like the, the meat chickens? Definitely. Yeah. The pigs have a dedicated pasture just for them. Yeah, I think you asked this earlier, but pigs are pretty, I call them rototillers. So <laughs> they love to root and they are pretty destructive. So I think it's in everyone, like whoever's listening to this would definitely you need a dedicated place for a pig so that you can move them and, and renew the grass mm-hmm. and the area, move to a new spot and be able to go back on it without the area being destroyed. Now, Brad, let me ask you about that because I've always been curious. Uh, We keep pigs at our place, but they definitely root. Uh, We've got really nice-sized pins for them, but over time, there is not a bit of vegetation left growing in that pin. So when you're you're putting pigs out on pasture, how do you keep it from turning into nothing but dirt? It's tough. It'll eventually get there. (laughs) And so we don't have any forested areas, treed areas. Um, so they're out on their pasture, irrigated pasture, and so you move them frequently, but eventually they have to be redone. Right now, we're actually redoing most of our pig pasture. We extended it and, and creating some better fencing. They finally worked most of our temporary fencing up enough that we just had to go back with some better fencing, but and we give them a little bit more area. But it's a matter of, like kind of like cattle, it's a matter of time. Mm-hmm. You don't want them to get bored. When they get bored, they're gonna they're gonna go. So we provide a, a, a waller for them. So hopefully that's where they go to get bored and, and root around in. Okay. Uh, but I haven't found any perfect solutions with pigs. We just, we love what the meat tastes like coming off the pasture when they have t- the chance to exercise. And I think that's a big part of it. Sure. Is they're getting out and exercising, they're running. They do like the grass. They really like legumes. And so we've added more of that into these new pastures so they can get some more of that protein. Uh, but they really like that leafy stuff. So you almost have to be prepared that they're going to destroy part of it too. Don't you think? Like yes. in my mind, you, oh, yeah. you almost have to be prepared. There's going to be your, you have a sacrifice place that they're going to destroy. Okay. And so you need to be prepared to know that you'll have to fence that off at some point and not let them in it and reseed it. There's just no other way with a pig. So you mentioned legumes. So what, what types of legumes do you like to plant into your pasture for the pigs? We put in like medium red clover and a, and a alfalfa, just standard alfalfa. Okay, is what we put in. They really like brassicas, so like the turnips and the kales and collards and and all that. They love those. Any like the leafy stuff. They eat grass. It's amazing how much grass they do eat. Mm-hmm. 
but they also really like those leafy, bigger leafed uh, plants. And in the fall, too, when there's a lot of pumpkins and squash available, we feed them a lot of squash and pumpkins, and so those are always growing back in the pasture. Sure. Um, something, it's just keeping them busy, keeping them eating, and they're a very social animal, so it's, it's just a whole different set of management. But they, like Maria said, they will at some point ruin the pasture, and if you can't handle that, you're probably not meant to have pigs. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you do when you have to replant? So if you're replanting part of the pasture where where the, the pigs are going to be coming back into, and Maria, you can take this one, but how long after you've planted and after the whatever you've planted, the legumes, the grass, the brassicas, how long after they start to come up do you wait to put the pigs back in? That's a good question, and I think Brad should take that. I'm not, a, <laughs> okay. I'm not, a, I'm not an expert on so that. So this Sorry. is our first big replant right now. Okay. And we're actually we're gonna we're gonna wait all the way till fall. Uh, we're just gonna kind of mow it down and keep it under control. But we want that ground to really set up. If they feel soft ground, they're gonna go. They're gonna root. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we want it to firm up. We want it to get growing up nice and big and, and thick. And, and that's the one thing I would say, too, is plant thick. Uh, plant some small grains. Plant some stuff. Just make it really thick for that first year. And we're just going to let it go. You're, you're gonna, it's, when we say sacrifice, it's, it's, a, it's a probably a year, almost a full year sacrifice when you replant. And, and how much land are we talking, say, per pig? Uh, how much, if you're going to run them on a pasture-based system, what would you recommend in terms of acres per pig? So we're at... Around 15 pigs per acre. And is it yeah. is it the type of situation, can you run them into a pen at night so you're just releasing them out on the pasture during the day, or is that is that just too difficult to do and so they're just on that pasture full-time until it becomes a sacrifice area? Yeah. Well, yeah. Because we have the alley now that we, we didn't have an alley before that was, that was secure. Uh-huh. Now we can flush them out of that pasture, lock it up, Put them up the alley to where the grain and the water is, and then we have a we use straw bales to build a house for them for okay. the shade and their winter warmth, and that's in a, a separate kind of a dry lot. Mm-hmm. And so now we'll be able to do that. Before they could, the fencing wasn't as good, so they could squirt through and get into another paddock. And so now it's going to be way more stable to be able to get them in an alley and get them up and get them out. I say too. I say too on anyone who's looking to pasture. Just something a little warning is definitely remembering to fence off or around your trees because they will destroy your trees. Okay. And go farther out than farther out than you think you should because they get under the root system and will will destroy your trees. So, so we've learned that a little bit too. Any trees you want to keep, you better protect. Right. Right. <laughs> okay. Yep. Now a pastured pig. Uh, you're still supplementing that with some some separate feed. I heard you mention grain bread. Yeah, so the pigs are corn and soy free. We provide the peas is the protein that we use, and triticale grain is is the energy source. And so we just mix those two um, when we and the triticale comes from our farm as well. Okay. And so when we run out of triticale in the winter time, we'll go to an oat that we raise, or if we have to, we'll buy some barley. Okay. That'd be the only time it doesn't come from us, but we try to keep enough triticale that we make it through. But those are the two that we grind and we provide their mineral uh, in there, and that's the grain that they get. 
So the the traditional ration for pigs is a mixture of corn and soybeans and some other things, but you're able to find other sources of both energy and protein to make up that ration that you can grow right here in Idaho. Right. Yeah, right and on it, our farm and, and our pigs. Yep. Yeah, it's it, it's not perfect. Like it's not the fastest growing system, and we don't want it to be. We're not trying to replicate what happens in confined houses, but we just know that it's stuff that we have here. Uh, soy is not grown around here, and so we can get it in, but it's not. You know, we want what's coming from here, mm-hmm. and so that's why we use what we use. Okay. And the the triticale has more lysine in it that pigs need, and so they seem to, you know, they're about a month and a half, two months behind, which is, is fine for us. That might not be okay, but that's okay for us. So when you're talking a month and a half to two months behind, uh, typically we'll shoot for a pig to be about six months of age when it's finished and it's ready to go to slaughter. So you're saying yours are going to be seven to eight months, somewhere in there. Yeah, I would say our average is right at seven and a half, eight. Yep. Okay. All yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Now let me ask. We also take it. We also take it to a little bit higher weight too. Than, oh, okay. Than your confined operation, so that that would be a factor as well. Okay. We we just prefer the the richness of the flavor and the fat content if we take them a little bit higher in weight. What weight do you try to get them to, Maria? And and, and what that is is a, a two thirty, two forty hanging. Two thirty ideally is our is our ideal hanging weight for so, a pig. So when you're shooting for a 230-pound hanging weight, what is that live weight when you take them into the to the butcher? Oh, it's I, – I guess we never even – we don't even weigh them. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a, a, a look, but if I was to guess, it would be 350. Okay. Three, three, yeah, three, I, yeah. I'd say 325. I don't know. Somewhere. Yeah, uh, somewhere. But we never weigh them. We just – it's what the – and we can kind of, you know, we're always hauling them in. And so we can kind of see what our weights, we always take the biggest ones out. So we can kind of see what our weights are doing and be like, oh, we need to, we need to wait a week, you know, give them a little bit more size. Mm-hmm. We keep them rolling that way. Well, Brad, one last question for you. I, I know that the way this all started based on everything I've read on your website and, and speaking with both of you today, it started with uh, a desire to improve soil health. Why is that so important? Well, about 10 years ago, we, we started realizing that we had to change something to uh, help our system become uh, more resilient. Uh, we, we saw that we were just using more and more and more things and inputs and our profitability was going down. And so we really got into uh, no-till farming, which led us down the path of soil health and keeping our soil covered and also introducing animals into that system. The way this, this system is naturally is, is it had animals in every system. Mm-hmm. And Animals are crucial to cycling the nutrients and to building up the biology in those populations. And so that is the foundation of our farm is we, we rest our hat on soil health. We believe that as the soil health increases, so does the health of the people. And we always say, you know, your health starts with our soil. And that's kind of a little slogan we have. But it truly is. As healthy as the soil is, is as healthy as that food that we're producing. And so we're always focused on how do we improve the soil, therefore the food is more nutrient-dense, and the people will get more value out of that food for their bodies. Well, this has been great, Maria. I know you're the marketer. If people out there listening, they want to know more about McIntyre Pastures, they want to do a, a farm tour or something like that, where do they get more information? 
Yeah, definitely hit up our website. Um, it's www.mcintyrefamilyfarms.com, and that has all of our products and tours coming up. The best thing, too, is when you're on the website is to submit your email address, and then I know I'll send things out about what's coming up, what harvests are taking place, tours. And I don't have time to spam you, so... It only goes out about one or two times a month. Well, Brad and Maria, this has been great. I've really enjoyed hearing all about it and learning so much. Thank you very much for coming on the show today and sharing. You're welcome. We appreciate your time. Thank you all for joining us today. And here is to you and your pursuit of the country lifestyle, however you define it. For the D&B Show, I'm Matt Breckwald.